Well, good morning, everybody. It is such a privilege to be able to gather together in this way. I received an interesting report this week about our online viewership. In the last 90 days, uh, people have joined our worship service from 34 different states and 12 different countries. 34 different states, 12 different countries. It'll be uh, no surprise to you that 90% of the people who join us for worship are doing so from Michigan, and almost all of those within driving distance of this building. 90% of the people involved in our church live within a driving distance of this building. The other 10% is all over the map and kind of interesting. So if Michigan is the number one state. Anybody want to guess what the number two state is? It's Florida, that's right, Florida. And that kind of makes sense, right? Uh, a lot of Michiganders who can afford to do so winter in Florida. A lot of Michiganders retire to Florida. Uh, so many do that that for years I assumed it was state law or something that when you retire, you have to move to Florida for at least a decade. Uh, last Sunday, 80 people joined us from the state of Florida for worship. Then after Michigan and Florida, it really dissipates and it's a couple of people around, but just for fun, that number three state is Illinois. Don't know why. The number four state, Arizona, which also might have something to do with warm weather and retirees, and I know a number of Ward families that have retired to Arizona. And then in recent weeks, our staff have had a growing number of contacts from people who live in Utah who have stumbled upon our website, all of them by accident. And we got to the bottom of this, and it turns out that within Mormonism, within the Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, they are divided into geographic regions called wards. And if you are a Mormon, you live in a ward, and in fact, you tithe, you give financially to your ward. And if you Google search my church ward or my ward church, you end up on our giving page. And, uh, and we know this because people have written our IT guy, Jeff, and they say, I'm trying to give my tithe to my ward, but my password isn't working. Can you give me a password? And I told Jeff, you know, if they want a password. Um, no, I didn't, I didn't tell him that. I, actually, I did say that, but I was joking for the most part. Uh, the geographic barriers have all been obliterated in our day. What concerns most American churchgoers and what strikes fear in American pastors is the lower number of attendance of in-person, in-building church attendance in America. And the comparative data that I've seen say that the average church in America, those that are open, not all churches even have face-to-face -face meetings right now, but those that do, they're experiencing between 25 and 50 percent in-building, in-person attendance, 25 to 50 percent, compared to what they had pre-pandemic. And for us, we're, we're closer to that 25 percent number. Last Sunday, there were almost 500 people of all ages in our building, and for us, that's about 25% of the number of people that would have been in our building on a typical Sunday prior to the pandemic. But what's interesting for our church and most churches, when you take the in-person attendance and add it to the online attendance, attendance is at or above where it was pre-pandemic. Now, online attendance is kind of hard to measure. It is squishy at best. We can tell how many devices are 
tuned in. We can't tell how many people are on each device or if anybody's on some of those devices. So it's squishy at best. But there's good reason to believe that in the United States, 2020 was a banner year for church attendance in our nation. There may have been more Americans that have participated in or have seen a worship service in 2020 than in any single year in the previous decade. I just want to add some optimism in the midst of the doom and gloom. And a lot of churches, ours included, you know, uh, shifted during the pandemic to provide more need-based meeting ministries like grocery distribution, and it's been really great. So I just want to say the church uh, of Jesus is alive and well. Uh, Yes? Yeah, the church of Jesus is alive and well. What's changing are the forms. What's changing are the methods. And today at the very end of this service, I'm going to invite you, ask you if you wouldn't mind filling out a survey for us that a lot of this has been on our mind. Now, we know that physical gatherings are not going away. Uh, The chance to be together eyeball to eyeball in tactile relationships, that's not going away. And our church has gained a lot of ground with our extra mile hospitality value. We give our building away. Uh, Northville Schools uses our building for testing. A lot of groups use our building. We have this playscape for people from our community to come in and use. And so we know we need a building that is warm and welcoming and inviting and functional and safe. But at the same time, we're thinking about physical space. We're thinking a lot about digital space. What does that mean? And what will new churches look like as we start and replicate churches? And so we've got a a short survey at the very end of our service. We put it right into the time, so we're going to still have you out of here at a regular Sunday morning time if you stay and do that. But until we get then, I'm going to give a sermon, and then we're going to sing a song, and then we're going to take a survey. Sermon, song, survey, that's where we're going for the rest of our time. We're in a sermon series on Romans chapter 8. And I want to be clear, this is not a sermon series on the book of Romans or on the entire letter of Paul to the church at Rome, 16 chapters. This is a sermon series just on one chapter. It's on chapter 8. And I want to say, uh, speak today first to the flow of the whole chapter 8, and then we'll get to the specific passage assigned for today. I wanted to call this sermon series on chapter 8, I wanted to, to title the series, The Best Chapter Ever. That's not original with me. A lot of other Bible teachers have referred to chapter 8 in this way. Uh, John Piper, uh, N.T. Wright, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, we learned last week that Martin Lloyd-Jones referred to this chapter as the brightest gem in all of the scriptures. Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach wrote an entire cantata based on this one chapter of the Bible. And I think you could build a fair case. I wanted to call the series the best chapter ever. And the team pushed back. They said you can't use the word best when talking about one part of the Bible. Uh, We just did this whole series that said all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is is useful. You're not going to get to heaven someday and say, hey, God, I read your book, and, you know, some chapters are better than others. Let's be honest. And, you know, you lost me in the genealogies, but Romans 8, you nailed that one. And, hey, I understand not every sermon can be a home run. You know, you're not going to say that to God. There, there is no part of the Bible that is less God's word 
than any other part of the Bible. They said, you cannot use the word best. So I fell back to the title, Many People's Favorite Chapter of the Bible. And the whole team was completely unanimous that this was a terrible idea. And then someone in the group suggested, let's call the series Inseparable. And I pushed back. Not because I don't like that title. I think it's a great title for part of, the, of chapter 8. Uh, but within chapter 8, uh, what people really love, there's, there's a favorite line in the favorite chapter. And a lot of you know what this is. Within the favorite chapter, there's a favorite line. And it's right at the end of chapter 8, and it goes like this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the favorite of the favorite, and inseparable is a great summary for that sentence, but is inseparable a good summary for the whole chapter? I'd always seen chapter 8 as a list of affirmations and encouragements, the final affirmation being the inseparability of God's love. But then I went back and I read chapter 8 through the inseparable lens. And I want to encourage you to do this. Read the entire chapter thinking about the inseparable love of God. So we begin to think, what is it that could separate you from God and from God's love? What could separate you? And we think, sin. That's the big one. Sin is the great separator. And we learned last week that sin is not just these things that we do that are wrong, sin is our nature. Uh, Soon told us last week soon I- uh, th- that sin is like a disease, and, and it's, it's the reason we're separated from God. Sin is the great separator. But then Romans chapter 8 starts this way. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Even sin, the great separator, cannot separate you from the love of God. And if we were the kind of church where people say amen, they would say that like right then, when I just said that, they would say, (laughs) right, right, it's amazing. Sin, the great separator, cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's just amazing. And then we think, well, what else could separate us from God's love? And in Paul's day and in ours, a lot of people have this fear of abandonment. And maybe you have given your trust and love to someone who betrayed you. And you feel the sting of that. And you wonder, could God be like that? Is it possible that God could leave you the way your wife did, the way your father did. And then we read later in chapter 8 this affirmation. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. God has adopted you as a child and he will never leave you. It is not going to happen. 
So what else could separate us from God's love? And people sometimes worry about their prayer life. They say, I know, I know God wants to be in constant communication with me, that I'm supposed to talk to God and God talks to me, but what if I don't pray right? What if I don't pray enough? What if I don't pray? And Romans 8 includes this affirmation. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. Anybody ever been there? We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people. Right? God says, I don't want you to worry about your prayer life or communication. That should be a help and not a hindrance. So God says, I am going to send my spirit, the third member of the Trinity, one who knows your heart better than you know it yourself. And I'm going to ask him to help you pray and if necessary, to pray for you. What? What? Even your sucky prayer life cannot separate you from the love of God. God says, I'm going to take care of everything so that nothing can separate us. Not your sin, not fear of abandonment, not a weak prayer life, not suffering, not physical decay. Nothing can separate you from my love. I want us to be close, God says, in this life and in the life that is to come. best chapter ever, right? That's the affirmation. And this inseparable life is made possible because of the new reality in the spirit ushered in by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This inseparable life is made possible by the new reality in the spirit ushered in by Jesus Christ. Life in the spirit is a key theme of Romans chapter 8. That word spirit is used 21 times in this chapter alone. Chapter 8 begins with the word therefore. The the very first word in chapter 8 is the word therefore. And we learned in Bible study, when you see the word therefore, you should stop and ask, what's it there for? And when you go back chapter 1 through 7, Paul outlines the problem and the problem of sin. And in chapters 1 through 7, the word law is used 31 times. The word spirit is used once. In chapter 8, everything changes. Paul's talking about life with God. And now the word spirit is used 21 times in that chapter. Something new is happening. There's a shift here. We were under law and now we're under spirit. We lived according to the flesh. Now we live according to the spirit. This is the inseparable life. This is a life of confidence and freedom. This is the with God life. And so in the early verses of chapter 8, Paul compares law and spirit. He goes back and forth, law and spirit, law and spirit. And this section, these first few verses, he's talking about the consequences of sin. Because under the law, we are all condemned. Under the law, there is no hope for any of us. None of us can measure up to the law. And so in the passage that was assigned for today, 
we read this. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. What the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Jesus took the consequence of sin onto himself and we are no longer condemned. That word condemned is a legal word. Think of a court of law and imagine you walking into this court of law knowing full well that you are guilty and hearing it pronounced that all charges against you have been dropped. There will be no penalty for wrongdoing. And then Paul shifts. In the first few, he's talking about, he's talking about law and spirit, but then he shifts and he talks about flesh and spirit. And here he's talking about the power of sin. He was talking about the consequence of sin. Now he's going to talk about the power that sin still has over us. And again, in today's passage, he says this in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is what? Life and peace. The, the, the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. So we can set our minds on the flesh or we can set our minds on the Spirit. And when the Bible uses that phrase, setting your minds, uh, it's not talking about just thinking. This is not some mental exercise. Paul is not writing about the power of the brain. That phrase, setting our minds in the original language, encompasses all the facilities of the soul. So flesh is an orientation to the world, and spirit is another orientation to the world. In the spirit, you enter a whole new way of being and living and seeing. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, wrote this. He said, it's not that a man just changes his beliefs and no more. No, he was in the realm of the flesh and he is now in the realm of the spirit. He was dominated by the flesh before and governed by it. He is now in a realm which is governed by the spirit. This is not just some doctrine of the Holy Spirit to believe. It's a whole new reality to enter into. Paul's favorite word to use to describe the inseparable life, his favorite phrase to use when he talks about what it means to be a Christian is this little preposition, in. He uses it multiple times. Those who are in Christ, those who are in the Spirit, right? It's not a doctrine to believe in, but a reality to enter into. Those who are in Christ, and I want you to notice how Trinitarian Paul is in chapter 8. He talks about the Father, and we're going to look at this great passage next week that emphasizes the Father. He talks about the Son. He talks about the Spirit. And in many ways, Paul acknowledges there's a slightly different role for each member of the Trinity, the three in one. Uh, God sent his Son in flesh to take on our sin. God sent his Spirit to enliven us so that no matter what happens, God can dwell in us. God sent his son. God sent his spirit. There's maybe different roles. But at the same time, 
Paul uses the phrase in Christ and in spirit almost interchangeably. Like he's talking about the same thing. And in one place in Romans 8, he talks about the spirit of Christ. Right, that the Trinity hangs together and cannot be separated itself. God himself cannot be separated. I say this because some people teach that first you receive Jesus, and then sometime later, maybe much later, you receive the Holy Spirit. Right, and, and but my best understanding of Paul is that for Paul to be in Christ is to be in the Spirit, and to be in the Spirit is to be in Christ, and if you're not in Christ, you're not in the Spirit. And if you're not in the Spirit, you're not in Christ. The triune God inhabits your life. I was on an airplane a week ago uh, coming back on a, uh, one of the, one of the uh, jaunts from Florida where I went to visit 10% of our congregation. And, uh, and the guy next to me, uh, when I was going to sit down, he said, Jesus loves you, man. And I said, oh, I was going to say that to you. No. Uh, and, and we had a quick conversation. We're both Christians. We had a little Jesus conversation, 30 seconds. And then he said, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And I said that I had. But I knew from his language that he would believe that I had not. We've, we've already established we both have Jesus in our life. But I could tell from his language he comes from a certain side of the Christian faith that has more of a separate understanding. And uh, I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. But he asked me if, if he could pray for me to receive the Holy Spirit. And I said, yes. And he prayed for me there on the airplane, and he snapped his fingers three times, and he told me to take in three deep breaths. And he told me that I would begin to feel something warm in the center of my being, and I didn't feel anything. And I, I wanted to. Really, I, I, want, I want whatever God has for me. And he told me that when he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, he immediately fell to the floor and laughed uncontrollably for two hours. And I was thinking, like, this is only an hour flight. Um, I do not doubt his sincerity, and I believe him to be a brother in Jesus, but I know he comes from part of the Christian family that really has this understanding that if you want to know who has the Spirit, you're trying to figure out who has the Spirit, who doesn't have the Spirit. He's from this family that looks for the evidence being these real dramatic manifestations like holy laughter. And maybe you've read about places where holy laughter seems to have broken out in certain places. Or more characteristically, and the one that's mentioned in the Bible is speaking in tongues, or maybe dramatic healings. How do you know who's got the spirit? We've got the spirit. Yes, we do. We got the spirit. How about you? How do you know? It's from these really dramatic signs. That's how you know in, in that camp. But my understanding of the Apostle Paul is that how do you know who has the spirit of God in their life? You will know by their life. You will know by how they live. In another letter, the Apostle Paul wrote, the fruit of the spirit, the evidence of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's how you know who's got the Spirit in their life. When people are rooted in the Spirit, you will see it in their life. The triune God comes into someone's life and things begin to happen. Now again, I, 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 I believe this guy to be a faithful Christian. We have a little different understanding of the Trinity or how that works. 
But people sometimes talk about being filled with the Spirit like the Spirit is something that can be contained and measured. We describe it as a filling of the Spirit, but it's really an emptying of self. We, we, we lay down more and more of our own stubborn will, and God's leadership comes more and more into our life. You begin to trust God in ways that you begin to no longer feel like you've got to control every little thing. Right? You, you don't need to spin and manipulate and protect your own image. You are secure. You're free. You can rest. It's my experience that you don't possess the Spirit. The Spirit possesses you. God takes up residence in your life and you give him more and more control over it as you know the power of his inseparable love. How, how deep the Father's love for us. He sent his spirit in flesh to take on our sin. He sent his spirit to enliven us and to dwell within us and to guide us. How good is our God. Will you pray with me now wherever you are? Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. We thank you for this new reality available to all who are in Christ. For what the law was powerless to do, you did by sending your own son to be a sin offering. Help us to live in accordance with the Spirit and have our minds set on what the Spirit desires. May our minds be governed by your Spirit that we may know life and peace. We pray now for those who may have viewed Christianity as a system of doctrine rather than a new reality grounded in you. And maybe there are some here today who are ready to cross the line of faith and to enter into something new and would want to pray, triune God, take up residence in my life. I recognize that Jesus took the law of sin onto himself and I am no longer condemned. I am free. I recognize the Holy Spirit is available to guide me and even to pray for me. I will move whatever needs to be moved out of my life so that you can move in. Thank you, God, that you can be trusted. And thank you for loving me with an everlasting love. How deep the Father's love for us. Help us to receive this love in ways that change us and in ways that change the world. This we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord and the whole church said, amen.